You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Air Church. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love him and love their neighbour. We pray these sermons serve to deepen your love for and obedience to Jesus. And whilst we trust these podcast sermons bless you, we would not want them to replace you gathering with us personally as you're able to or committing to a local gospel church near you. So if you want to explore Jesus more, gather with us, or find a church near you, please get in touch through our website, harvestair.church. You are loved. Please take your seat and open up to Matthew chapter 5. If you're using one of the, the Bibles on the seats, it'll be on page 760 or page 761, one of the two. And we're continuing on this morning in our series in uh, Matthew called Kingdom Living, thinking about what uh, it looks like to be real disciples. How do real disciples live under Jesus' rule? And uh, this morning, thinking particularly about how we respond when things go wrong, when we are wronged, when we're hurt, when we're harmed, thinking about what it means to love our enemies. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, And we're going to be reading together um, just now, verses 38 to 48. Please do keep it open as well uh, throughout our whole time together so you can see um, these things for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Um, Let me just pray for us as we come to um, hear God speak. Father, we ask now that in these moments, your spirit, um, which is within us and is present with your word that it would pierce our hearts and our souls that you would speak to us you would change us that you would help us to hear and to respond that you would soften our hearts and help us to respond in repentance and faith and obedience and father we ask that you would do these things in jesus name amen so really If we were um, to ask ourselves, how should we respond to those who seek to hurt us or or choose to hate us, we would realize that that is a question that we are faced with constantly. How do we respond to those who hurt us or hate us, whether that's at personal times or maybe as we look at others around us, we are faced with that question. It's a question which we'll continue to ask again and again throughout our whole lives. It's a question we can't avoid, right? How do you and I respond to those who would seek to hurt us or harm us or hate us in whatever form that would take? From the the sibling who tries to snatch something from us to the bully who tries to corner us, the person who's seeking to steal from us, the organization that's pressuring us for our faith 
or maybe even the country who has just invaded us. Not us personally, of course, but when we think about the world on a global level, we are faced with these things. It's not an abstract question. It's a question that we will and do face. It's one we need to figure out. And for many in our world, it's a question that's being asked in the face of significant evil. Not just the everyday run-of-the-mill kind of thing, arguments, tension, significant evil. So how do we respond? Well, Jesus here teaches us in Matthew 5 how we're to respond to those who would hurt us, harm us, or hate us. You and I will we will encounter such circumstances. And Jesus is teaching here, again, though we may be so familiar with it, and these things in many ways are phrases which are even taken on the lips of everyone within our culture. We really need to see here the response that he's calling us to is ridiculously radical. It's a radical and countercultural way to respond to hurt, harm, and hatred. Jesus here calls us to a depth of righteousness, a depth of righteousness in how we respond that led him to even go to the point of death. So that's what he's going to teach us, exhort us, call us to this morning, a radical righteousness, a depth of righteousness that he himself demonstrated by being willing to go to even the point of death. So the response that God's word is calling us to have this morning, which will be up on the screen for you, is this. Real righteousness, that's what we've been thinking about over these last two or three weeks. What does it look like to be a real righteous disciple? Real righteousness responds to harm and hate with non-retaliation and love. Real righteousness responds to harm and hate with non-retaliation and love. So first thing then we see is this. Real righteousness calls me to be generous to those who hurt me. If you look down to verse 38, you've heard it said that it, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting things which come from the Old Testament. And uh, Exodus 21 is, is one such place. And when, when men strive together, it says in Exodus 21, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay, I think there, Moses was really trying to emphasize there what he was uh, getting across. It's, it's important that we know a number of things as we think about this law, this eye for eye, tooth for tooth law. Firstly, it was designed to be administered, it wasn't designed to be administered personally, but judiciously. It was designed to be a law that was decided upon and administered by courts and judges with witnesses. Okay, this, this was not some kind of, this was not you and, and me and our mates uh, squaring up a, a fight in the playground or the alleyway. That's not what this rule was supposed to govern. It was supposed to be decided upon and administered by judges, courts, and witnesses. Second thing to note is, it was a law that was designed to be restrictive, not prescriptive, Okay. That is, if your neighbor came around to your house and, you, and punched you three times in the face, you, you weren't to go to this law and go, okay, this law tells me I must now go back around to him and punch him three times in the face. That's a prescriptive approach to this law. A restrictive approach would say retaliation is not preferable at all. But if it does happen, it must be decided in the courts by the judge, and it shouldn't go beyond this limit. 
And we even see in the Old Testament itself that these things were not taken to the absolute limit, um, with the exception maybe being murder, life for life. Exodus 21 is such an example. It says this, when men quarrel, so two men fighting, one strikes the other with a stone uh, with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed. And if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So the guy who was struck, who ended up in bed, the law is here telling him is not to go back and strike him again. The guy who struck him is to pay him for his lost time. So here even you see in the New Testament, the law wasn't being taken to the limit. And it was a law that existed just like we thought about last week with divorce. It was a law that had to exist because of the hardness of human hearts, of our hearts. Uh, John Piper says of this law in Matthew, God gives by concession a legal regulation. So by concession, he shouldn't have to give this law if we really loved each other, but he gives it. He gives by concession a legal regulation as a dam against the river of violence which flows from man's evil heart. That's what this law was designed to do. The default of your heart and my heart, if we're honest about it, is to not just get even, okay? It's to go a little bit further, isn't it? It's to get payback. It's to get them back worse than they got us. It's to do something that makes sure they will shut up permanently, right? Yet the deep demands of the law, which we've been seeing throughout these weeks, the deep demands of the law, which Jesus is showing us here, has been, still are, loving our neighbor, even those who wrong us, not seeking personal revenge, instead leaving justice and vengeance to God and to his appointed means in the form of governmental law enforcement. What was happening here in the context that Jesus is addressing is, and the context he's speaking into is that everyone who, who was around him, that particularly the religious leaders, were, were taking this law and they were using it as a justification for their own personal revenge. Hey, Moses says we could do this. Therefore, it's okay if I go and, and, and punch my neighbor back three times. That's what was happening here. It was being applied in a prescriptive manner as well. They weren't leaving justice and vengeance to God. Their attitude was the same attitude we've been thinking about this whole time when it comes to, when it comes to divorce and adultery, when it comes to murder. They were seeing, where's the line? Where, where is the line? Where's the line so that I can get as close to that line without crossing it? And even in some cases, moving the line to justify my sinful actions. That's the kind of heart attitude that Jesus has been addressing this whole time. Jesus, show me where the line is so that I know what I shouldn't cross. When instead the heart attitude should be, I stay as far away from the line as I can. And that's the heart of the issue here. That's the heart of the problem here. They were looking for limits rather than choosing to love. They were choosing limits over love. They were choosing rights and revenge over relationship. That's what Jesus is really getting at here in verses 38 to 42. If you and I are truly seeking to love God and love our neighbor, neighbor, which is the heart of the law, both Old and New Testament, then we don't ask the question, where is the line I shouldn't cross? We should ask, what does it look like to love in this situation? 
We don't ask where is the line I shouldn't cross, but what does love look like in this situation? So what does a loving response look like? Well, remember, there is a place for government justice and, of course, the final justice of God. But when it comes to us personally, we are not to retaliate or seek revenge in any form. Rather, we are to be marked by generosity. And I'm not talking here about uh, financial generosity. You know, someone hits you, you give them a £20 note automatically. Generosity of spirit. Although financial generosity does come into play here. Generosity of spirit. A generosity that's willing to give some things up sacrifice some things, count the cost, all with the goal of obeying and glorifying Jesus. Being willing to give some things up rather than get revenge. And verse 38 to 42 really highlight this generosity. It calls us to give up some things and to even go beyond what's expected of us. Do you notice that when we were reading it? Not just one mile, two miles, not just the cloak, but the tunic too. To go beyond what was expected. And it's worth noting here as well, okay, the link with anger that we thought about a few weeks ago. It's worth emphasizing again here the link with anger and the preventative hard work we need to do in order to truly obey Jesus here. An angry heart, because an angry heart will impulsively seek retaliation, right? Again, it's about staying as far away from the line as we can. If we really want to obey these commands, we'll we'll deal with anger in our hearts. An angry heart will impulsively seek retaliation. A calm heart will instinctively seek de-escalation, non-retaliation, and even reconciliation. So we can't forget what's come before. All these things really, in many ways, link together. So as we dive into... The the things that we're to be generous about and be willing to give up, it's also important to note that we aren't to apply these things to the nth degree, okay, here, like like other aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is using illustrations here to highlight certain guiding principles we are to apply when we're wronged. Okay, similar to lust, okay, Jesus didn't expect us to actually walk away and literally cut off our hand and literally tear out our eye because that didn't get to the heart. So to here, he's using illustrations to highlight certain guiding principles that we are then to apply with wisdom to the circumstances we might find ourselves in. So we don't need to stay and take a beating without attempting to flee from danger, okay? This isn't a call to just lie there and take a beating. If we can flee from it, you should run, okay? Common sense in many ways. It doesn't mean we should just unthinkingly and unwisely hand over our debit card along with the pen to whoever asks for it, okay? It doesn't mean we're supposed to literally strip ourselves naked, as some in church history have have taken it that far. We're to literally strip ourselves naked if someone comes and tries and steals a piece of clothing from us. It doesn't mean we never defend our innocence in certain circumstances, either, as Jesus himself did. It doesn't mean we never use the court system. Obeying Jesus' teaching here doesn't mean facilitating the spread of evil. It's not a kind of really passive Just let it happen. It doesn't mean we don't stand up for righteousness and justice in our society. It doesn't mean we don't advocate. It means we, it's not advocating here for some kind of extreme form of pacifism, as some again in church history have taken it to mean. It doesn't mean we negate the place of law enforcement, just war, or the honorable service of Christians in those institutions. What Jesus is getting at here is how do you and I personally respond when evil comes knocking at our own door? 
How do you and I personally respond when evil comes knocking at the door? What are these underlying principles of generosity that Jesus is teaching you and me here? Sacrifices we should be willing to make. What lengths should we be willing to go to in the name of love? So with much wisdom in applying these things, here they are. Rather than seek revenge, I'm willing to make the following sacrifices, reputational sacrifices. And that's really the primary thing that the cheek for, to, to turn the other cheek is getting at here. Not retaliating is more important than my reputation. It's saying that not retaliating is more important than my reputation. It means I'm secure in who God says I am, and therefore I don't feel the need to defend myself. In choosing to forego my reputation, I get a chance to model Jesus and ensure nothing I say or do would hinder that. Nothing I say or do would stop a gospel conversation down the line. Nothing I would say in anger would prevent a good conversation happening down the line and a receptive ear. It means I'm willing to have my dignity defamed because I recognize the person who has wronged me has inherent dignity as someone made in the image of God, and I want them to know that God. I want them to know that God. It basically means I'd rather be slagged off than start a slapping contest. That's what this verse is getting at. Again, there's wisdom that needs to be applied there. But it means making a sacrifice in terms of our reputation, which is the primary thing it's talking about here. The, the slapping of the cheek would have been a form of insult. But then there is also a physical aspect here too, a sacrifice physically. Am I willing, or I should be willing, in certain circumstances, to absorb, and here's where the teaching really hits, where rubber really hits the road here, circumstances you and I might not necessarily find ourselves in, but many around the world do, it means I'm willing in certain circumstances to absorb unjust physical abuse or assault rather than fight back. Default is to flee. But Jesus' teaching here, and we really need to wrestle with this, and I have wrestled with this this week, there is no warrant here to punch back. I am willing in certain circumstances to absorb unjust physical abuse or assault rather than fight back. And you might be thinking, well, what about self-defense or the defense of others and the use of force in defense of self or others? Well, this is something that even faithful Christians have disagreements on, and we're not going to settle that debate this morning. But it's an important thing to think about because it's a good question, and it may be a question we're faced with literally. There are many variables and circumstances that we would need to take into consideration and so a black and white answer is not the best way forward because applying these principles requires more wisdom and nuance than that. It's not as simple as just hit back. So as I see it, there, there's a number of factors I think we need to throw into the mix here when thinking about self-defense and how they marry up together. I'll be honest here. How they marry up together in any given circumstance requires wisdom and there should be room for grace. These important factors are this. Firstly, Jesus and the New Testament, Jesus teaches and the New Testament teaches a radical, non-violent, non-retaliatory, not loving our lives even unto death, laying down our life for our friends, enduring unjust persecution to the point of death, not using our own personal swords like Peter did in the garden. That kind of approach, that kind of stance, even in the evil world we are in, 
And Jesus' teaching here, and I think we really need to wrestle with this, Jesus' teaching here on nonviolence is so radical that it should cause us at the least to really wrestle with the use of force and self-defense. It'd be easy to be black and white here, but it's not that easy. If we don't even stop to have to wrestle with the use of force and self-defense, I don't think we're really taking these teachings as radically as they're meant to be taken. The second fact we need to throw in is this. The ideal is that we can flee any given circumstance so that self-defense is, is taken off the table altogether. That would be the ideal, right? We'd be able to get out of the circumstance. The third factor is this. The Bible's clear and repeated exhortation to defend and protect the weak and vulnerable particularly. It's in there. It's clear. The Bible calls us to defend and protect the weak particularly. And the fourth thing to throw into the mix, to complicate it even further, the God-ordained role of government who is authorized as God's servant to justly avenge and carry out God's wrath on a wrongdoer. And in our context, that would be the police and the military. So how any given circumstance might work itself out requires wisdom, but love must be our primary heart motive. Even in the form of law enforcement and military, there must be love there. Love must be our primary heart motive. Preserving life must be a priority, even the life of the wrongdoer. And being willing to lay down our lives when faced with injustice, just as Jesus did, should not be strange to us. It shouldn't be strange to us that we might have to lay down our lives in certain circumstances. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. So reputational physical, and then legal. If you look at the verse around the tunic, um, this really here is getting at, um, I think Sinclair Ferguson puts it helpfully, it's not allowing my legal rights to determine my relationships. It's not allowing my legal rights to ultimately determine my relationships. So if we're making legal sacrifices, again, it doesn't mean we run roughshod over the, the courts and we never take things to the courts. Or we, of course, we report crimes to law. But is court my last option? It means striving to settle things fairly, graciously, gently, sensitively, and honorably where we can. It means if I end up in court, I speak truthfully, and I don't slander or exaggerate or seek to degrade someone who has wronged me. It means I'm not triumphalist if the judge rules in my favor. It means I exhibit humility and a desire to forgive, reconcile, and be at peace so far as it depends upon me. Kind of uh, came to mind, the thing that came to mind to me was... Uh, uh, Les Miserables, uh, you've maybe, uh, you're, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that. You've, the most recent thing would be the Hugh Jackman film version of that. But where Jean Valjean comes out of prison, uh, the priest, Bishop Myrell, invites him into his home. Jean Valjean steals silverware from him, flees the house. The police catch up with Jean Valjean, bring him back to the bishop. And the bishop says, no, I gave him that silverware. I give him that silverware the bishop forwent his legal right to have him arrested and throw him back in jail. That's the kind of thing we're getting at here. Now, again, that doesn't mean we never report crime or we don't take things to the court. That's not. But the principle here is that I'm willing to make certain sacrifices and be generous in order to point people to Jesus. Legal and then material sacrifices literally give the, the tunic here, right? I'm willing to make material, I'm willing to take a material or financial loss Loss of comfort, okay? Sounds like this person would have been pretty cold after giving both their cloak and their 
tunic and willing to take a financial material loss and a loss of comfort if it might lead someone to Christ and the gain that is to be found in him. I'm willing to take a loss, to take a hit, in order to show someone the gain is to be found in Jesus. Financial or, or freedoms as well, sacrifice of freedom, reputational, physical, legal, material, and then freedoms. Um, if you look down, uh, let me just find it, verse um, 40, 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The, the context here likely refers to soldiers, Roman soldiers who were subjugating and humiliating citizens into carrying military supplies a certain distance. We could think of maybe unjust conscription. A circumstance where we are forced into something unwillingly. Our freedoms are removed. But yet we still go the extra mile. We're willing to forego our freedoms. This example calls us to be willing to relinquish certain freedoms from the confidence and the certainty of the freedom we have in Christ and in order to point to the eternal freedom that that person could have in Christ. Physical, reputational, legal, material freedoms, and then financial, verse 42. Give to the one who begs and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 42 42 really drives home this call to generosity over getting revenge. Because in verse 42... It's less an example of those who would want to hurt or harm us. Do you notice that? There's a kind of an innocence to verse 42, which really highlights the, the, the generosity we would have. It's less an example of those who would want to hurt or harm us and more an explicit example of those who would seek to take from us. So yes, there are proverbs in the Bible which give us much wisdom about how we should lend or not lend money. Okay, So again, we apply wisdom here. We can't just read verses in isolation and just give without thought. But given those caveats, given those wisdom, those proverbs that the Bible teaches us about loaning people money, Jesus here is calling us to cultivate a heart that doesn't view beggars and borrowers as harassers, but as those who are helpless. And who through our generosity get a taste of the generosity of the grace of God in Christ. That's what he's calling us here to. A heart that is truly generous will be expressed not only in those who maybe haven't harmed us, but also in those who do. That's a truly generous heart. So the main thrust of this section is to call us to overcome evil and injustice with a radical, countercultural good that can only be explained by the gospel of Jesus. It is to fight that eye-for-eye impulse that is so deeply ingrained in our DNA, right? That my brother hits me in the arm, so I'm going to thump him back twice as hard. That eye-for-eye impulse that's so deeply ingrained in our DNA. It is to respond in such a way that doesn't make sense to the world around us. Even sometimes doesn't make sense to us, right? It's to respond in that kind of way, to make personal sacrifices that would point people to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's about asking the right questions. Questions like, not where is my limit and how I respond, but what lengths am I willing to go to in order to show love here? It's about asking not how I can get even here, even legally, but what does generosity look like here? Often we want to overwhelm someone with force to make them stop or get our own back right. Instead, the Christian 
the Jesus follower, the real, truly righteous disciple of Jesus, instead strives to overcome and overwhelm them with grace and generosity in order to give them a glimpse of the gospel. Seeks to overcome and overwhelm them with grace and generosity in order to give them a glimpse of the gospel. That's what Romans 12 points to, verses 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think there's some music playing in the background, just in in case anyone noticed. (laughs) So we're to not overcome um, evil with evil, we're to overcome evil with good. So these verses should shape how we respond to persecution for our faith, whether it's in the workplace or wherever it might be. It should shape how we deal with conflict. It should shape how we deal injustice, even from the very government that's meant to promote good. Other places in the Bible speak more explicitly to that. We've had examples in history of that, like the American Civil Rights Movement. It should shape how we respond to bullying, and it should shape how we respond to violence. It's about realizing that not retaliating isn't just the right thing to do. Okay, this is important here. It's about realizing that not retaliating isn't just the right thing to do. It's the best thing to do, not just for the person that you're not retaliating against, but for yourself. In Matthew terms, it's not just the best thing to do, it's the blessed thing to do, right? We saw that back at the beginning of chapter 5. Being blessed is better than getting payback. Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's better, it's not just the right thing to do, it's the best thing to do, it's the blessed thing to do, and it's much better than getting paid back. And if, as if Jesus' teaching wasn't radical enough here, we're not just to not retaliate. Okay, he goes one further in verses 38 to 42. He doesn't just stop at not retaliating. He calls us to go further and to love those who wrong us. That's the second thing we see here. Real righteousness calls me to be generous to those who hurt me and to be loving to those who hate me. Verses 38 to 42, if you look down with me. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, this comes from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And again, the context is that they've taken this, they've twisted it and distorted it. Once again, primarily by the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who kind of read it as, well, if we are to love our neighbors, if that's what we're called to do, then that must mean it's okay to hate our enemies. Jesus only tells us to love our brothers, so what about our enemies? Well, it must be okay to hate them then, isn't it? In this case, they were extrapolating the law falsely to make excuse and to justify their hatred for their enemy. And again, this was never the heart behind the Old Testament law either, nor is it the same in the New Testament. Exodus 23, verse 4 to 5 is a great example. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, You could equate that to your enemy's car breaking down, okay? If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. 
someone who hates you. Once again, Jesus is exposing and showing that the the deep demands of the law then and now mean that we are called to love instead of hate. So three things to think about here. Who are we to love? How are we to love? And why are we to love our enemies? Who are we to love? We're to love those who hate us. We're to love those who hate us. It's not an easy thing to do, right? But it's a Christian thing to do. It's what Jesus did. Or maybe to make it slightly more relatable, we might not think that there's anyone who hates us, but maybe there are those who we think resent us, hold a grudge against us, who don't speak to us. Those who have maybe mocked or maligned us for our faith, maybe a family member, a colleague, a a classmate, or neighbor. Jesus is calling us here to not just tolerate those people, but to love them. Not just tolerate them, but to love them. How? Well, that's the second thing. Look down in verses, or, or, or how are we to love them? Well, verses 38 to 42 that we've already thought about in many ways are an example. We're to be generous towards them. We're to not retaliate against them. And again, wisdom is required here. Loving an enemy may sometimes mean loving them from afar. If they're an angry person or a damaging person or a person who would wreak havoc in your life, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to love them up close. It might mean loving them from afar. So again, there's wisdom to be applied here. But verse 44 gives us a really easy, clear, not necessarily easy, but a clear way we can love our enemies. Pray for them. Pray for them. Do you pray for the people you find difficult in your life? By name? Do you pray for them? Praying for them is a key step in softening our hearts towards them. And we need to persevere in that prayer. Because it won't always be easy, right? Psalm 109, verses 4 to 5. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. The psalmist there gives himself to prayer, even though their love is returned with accusation, evil, and hatred. But they give themselves to prayer. I don't think that means just one time. Romans 12, 19 to 21. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So loving our enemies might mean helping them practically meeting some practical needs they might have, enabling them to be physically sustained. That's what really was happening with the donkey and the ox, right? They were preserving their enemies' livelihood, support, It might mean preventing others from harming them. You know when someone hurts you or harms you and your family members get their back up on your behalf and want to hunt them down with a baseball bat? It's about stopping that. It's about preventing them from taking revenge on your behalf. It means taking into account the fact that the person who's wronged you has probably wronged other people in their life, maybe even family members, and seeking to take that into consideration to show them compassion. And it means, at the very least, that we speak respectfully of those who've wronged us or who hate us. So who are we to love? Our enemies. How are we to love them? And then why are we to love them? Verses 45 to the end of this section. Four reasons Jesus gives us here to love our enemies. Because we're sons of our Father. We're sons and daughters of our Father. Like Father, like Son. We're to resemble Him. We're to love our enemies because we are sons of our Father who loves His enemies. Romans 5 
God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, then we have not, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God loved us when we were his enemies. So too as his sons and daughters we are to love others who would be considered our enemies. We're to resemble our father. We're to be gracious like our father. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. What, what that's talking about here is what is commonly known as common grace. Common grace. God's grace is non-discriminatory. God's preserving grace is non-discriminatory. God in his loving kindness chooses to preserve in this age the life of all on this planet, even the wicked and evil, with the purpose of giving them time to turn in repentance from their sin and turn to him. So just like him, we should extend grace to all without discrimination. To resemble our Father, to be gracious like the Father, and to go beyond easy like our Father. Verses 46 to 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The easy thing to do, right, is to love those who reciprocate our love. It's to love those we find easy to love. But if we are to be like our Father, it means we will love those who don't reciprocate that love. Those who we find hard to love. That's real love, right? Real love doesn't just love those who reciprocate or those who we can easily relate to, who we have things in common with, who do us favors. That's a selfish love. Real love is more radical than that. Real love hangs out with and loves the strange classmate, the colleague who is the butt of everyone's jokes, the difficult family member, and we all have them, maybe we are them. Loves the difficult family member. It loves the challenging church member. To be totally devoted like the Father is the fourth reason. To resemble him, to be gracious like him, to go beyond easy like him, and to be totally devoted like him. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Verse 48 really is not just a summary of this section on loving our enemies. It's, it's a summary of that, this whole section from verse 17 onwards. And we often read the word perfect, right, don't you? I, I know it, when you automatically read that word, you think perfection, kind of moral perfection. That's what we think of in, in, our, in our English language, isn't it? And then we read that and we think, oh man, I can't reach that. Am I being asked to be perfect? That seems like an impossible task. But what we're being called to here is more like the call to be holy as God is holy. Okay, think about it more in that terms. You notice the kind of similar uh, phrasing, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect be holy as God is holy. That's more what, what, what Matthew's getting at here. Jesus uses a word here that communicates not just holiness. No, he uses a word that communicates wholeness. Why does he not just say be holy as you're holy? He, he has an intention here in using a slightly different word. He's, not, he's communicating not just holiness as in kind of being set apart and obedient, but he's wholeness. Holiness, the reason he uses a different word here is because holiness in this context, in a, in a pharisaical context, in a how, 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 where's the line so I know where I don't need to cross kind of context, holiness had been cheapened and hollowed out. 
Holiness was an outward observance. It was hollow holiness. And the reason Matthew doesn't use that word, the reason Jesus doesn't use that word is because it would have been misunderstood. The Pharisees would have heard holiness and thought, yeah, I'm doing that. No, Jesus says, not not that kind of holiness. Wholeness. Wholeness. Jesus is calling them and us to a deeper heart-level kind of holiness, a deeper heart-level kind of wholeness, a a total heart-deep devotion to God, a heart-deep devotion that in the case of hurt and harm chooses not to, not just cross a line, but to love. So just take a minute to think of those in your life you find hard to love. Pray for them. Earnestly. Persevere in that. Pray for those who try to love you. Pray for those who try to love us, because we are all not easy to love either, right? Pray for those who you find hard to love. Pray for those who have to try to love you. Consider how you can do good to them. Remember, especially when it gets difficult, how the Father views them and treats them. And remember, ultimately, that Jesus died to save them and to save us. Jesus, who Isaiah 50 tells us, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus, who turned the other cheek, literally. Jesus, who Matthew 26 tells us, then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. Jesus, who 1 Peter 2 tells us, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus responded to the harm and hatred of those who killed him. And we, by our sin, are complicit in that murder. Jesus responded to that harm and hatred by not retaliating, but in love laying down his life so that our sin might be removed. That we might be made righteous before a holy God. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died to make that possible. He died to make it possible for us to not only be declared righteous, but to be given new hearts that can respond to harm and hatred in the righteous way we're being called to here. It's not impossible. Jesus calls us to this real righteousness. It is through him that we've been declared righteous and because of him that we can become more righteous. Because of him that we can live this truly righteous life that he calls us to live. Real righteousness, total devotion, A heart-deep holiness, not a hollow, cheap one. New hearts, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that love in a non-retaliatory way, so that Jesus is honored and glorified, and so that those who try to hurt us get a glimpse of the extravagant mercy and grace of God.
Real righteousness responds to harm and hate with non-retaliation and love. Real righteousness loves our enemies in light of how Jesus has loved us. That's what this is all about. And we're going to think about that now just as we gather around the Lord's table.